Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Hello, and you are very welcome along to We Love Movies. Coming up this week, we will be reviewing Top Gun Maverick. Has it been worth the wait? Plus, we'll have a rundown of all the big movie stories from the week as well. So lots to come on this week's We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Good to have you with us on this week's We Love Movies. Joining me is Andy McCarroll, Olivia Fahey and Chris Wasser. We're going to kick things off with the movie news because still to come, we will be reviewing Top Gun Maverick. But um, there's still lots to discuss. Olivia, Warner Brothers recently was acquired by Discovery. Now we have Warner Brothers Discovery. And normally what happens when there's a big takeover by one corporation over another is that uh, the executives, the things get moved around and we have a new CEO of Warner Brothers, David Zaslav. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. And he's like the Axeman cometh. He has been really trimming things back and he hasn't held back on some of his opinions in regard to certain movies that have been greenlit with stars that have been held in very high regard with Warner Brothers. Oh my God. Like when I was hearing about all this, I was just like, oh my God, the shade of it all. (laughs) He doesn't give two you know what's about anything. He's coming in, as you were saying, he's just taking the ax to absolutely everything. He went in, called a meeting, and basically went through every single flop that Warner Brothers has had over the last while and was basically questioning the thought process behind the, giving all of these films the green light. Cry Macho was top of his hit list. And he was essentially just like, this, no, this was crap. This was never going to make any money. Why the hell did you green light this Clint Eastwood film? And they all went, well, because it was a Clint Eastwood film. And essentially... They turned around and said the only reason they let him make that film is because A, it's Clint Eastwood and they felt obliged to let him do it because he always delivers his films under budget and on time. And they wanted to keep their, what is it, like 50 plus year relationship going with them. And that's the only reason why that film was made. They knew damn well it wasn't going to make 33 million back at the box office. I think it barely made 15 in total. So when you see like responses like that, you can see why, you know, Warner really needed someone to come in and essentially give them a kick up the arse because, you know, you just can't keep doing that anymore. And one of his quotes was, uh, this isn't um, show friendship, it's show business. And I was like, I love that because it's true. Unfortunately, like when it comes to the fact that like every studio was kind of struggling money wise because nothing really made any money in the last two years. So when you hear that they gave this the green light and to put it out there during lockdown, so it literally had no hope in hell of making its money back. You do have to kind of be like, yeah, all right. Uh, We could kind of see where you're going with that. You kind of wonder, though how Clint Eastwood feels about all of that because he is, he, he's been able to make films with Warner Brothers pretty much every year. He's just been given, you know, the, the, the keys to the lot and just use it for what you want. Like he, he's able to get stuff green. Like Cry Macho was a, a script that had been languishing for a very long time. And I know we tore it apart. I remember Andy, the, the, the trailer alone was absolutely laughable. Do you think, these comments are disrespectful to Clint or is it about time? Well, you know what? Hang on a second. We're going to start at the top here. And unfortunately, people aren't going to get their way like they used to. 
Yeah, and I think but, the irony of him using the line, it's show friends, not show business, which is from Jerry Maguire, a film that was kicked around because people didn't think it would be successful and then was one of the studio's biggest hits is, is very ironic. I think that Clint Eastwood is someone who has earned the right to kind of, you know, make something that, you know, loses four or five million for the, the studio, considering all he's made for them over the years. And it's, it's good and bad in a way, like from a business standpoint, obviously the studio is to, to make money. But I think films like this, which aren't going to be like a huge dent in the budget sheet, these mid-budget films that are, you know, character-driven stories. And he's just basically, no, it's all going to be Harry Potter and superheroes now. I'm not mad about that because he has not mentioned anything in relation to, you know, original content or, you know, films that aren't based on prior material. So from that standpoint... Yeah, so it's it's definitely a businessman running a businessman, and I think the the sentimentality or or love of the film industry isn't going to play into any of his decision making. Oh God, it could be potentially worrying times. But I wonder what um, he'll do with the likes of DC and Ezra Miller, where that fella be uh, kicked to the curb. I'm actually interested though, Olivia, um, the way things are progressing with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. Are we hearing any more about Amber Heard and her ca- character? Is it Maya? Is that the name? Of the car? Um, why the uh, in Aquaman? Mira. Mira, you could get that more wrong. But like, because there's talk of her being cut right back. Is there any more news on that? Because there's there's been, that was a 3 million now people have signed that petition. They just don't, they don't want her anywhere near the film. Yeah. And it turns out that the whispers of Warner Brothers, like wanting to, take her out of the film uh, is something that she claimed was true uh, when she took to the stand. And um, essentially, <laughs> in uh, in rebuttal, they actually had the head of DC Films take the stand to refute all of her claims to be like, no, no, we weren't doing this off the back of, you know, your legal woes with your ex-husband. We were thinking of reducing your role in the film because you have shite chemistry with Jason Momoa. And also it's not the film that we were going to go make. The film that we're trying to make is a buddy comedy. Now, let's just sit on that for a second. They want to make Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom a buddy comedy like mm. that that's that, for starters that was a bit of an oh moment and yeah he essentially said that for the so it's Walter Hamada is the new um, head of DC films and he took to the stand and other under oath was just like yeah they didn't have a lot of chemistry together and we actually had to edit around it to make it look like they had more chemistry than they actually had and when you hear stuff like that it's like well yeah, okay, that would definitely warrant, you know, them to be rethinking how to work with you because if they're putting in all this effort to make it look like you're working well with the lead actor who get like guess what? They ain't changing him. Mm. So, of course, that would warrant them looking at it in a different way. So, for her to then take to the stand to be like, "Oh, they were only doing this because, you know, of my um accusations against Johnny Depp." It was like, "Well, no, like I think because of course all this, they were planning all this from 2018, which was just before all this really started um, gaining momentum in the media. So in that sense, yeah, like to have the head of Warner Brothers go on to the stand and basically be like, no, no, she was full of crap. I was like, that was um, that was very surprising to say the least. It is very surprising. Like Chris granted the man, uh, uh, Walter, what's the name again? Walter Mata. Walter- Hamada. Walter Hamada. Thanks, Olivia. He was brutally honest, Chris. 
Yeah, the whole thing is, I mean, aside from 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 what this trial is actually about, everything else that we've learned around it, it's quite uncomfortable because we don't usually find out that level of detail about, you know, what a studio thought of, you know, one of their actors when they're actually making a follow up film to a successful film, what they thought of their actors, you know, during the filmmaking process. So it's all been very uncomfortable. And I am very curious to see because there is a bit of extra time now um, before the second Aquaman film comes out. I think we're going to get it in the spring of next year as opposed to the end of this year. Um, there is time there for them to either shrink that role of hers, Amber Heard's role, or replace her. And the interest is there for, for you know, and they, they are going to listen to the fans. Remember, this is a studio that listened to fans of the DC films. The only reason that that Zack Snyder cut of, of, of Justice League was made was because they listened to the fans. So there is precedence there for them listening and saying, right, okay, we're going to do what you want here. So I am interested to see if they're going to replace her, but I'm not comfortable with this idea of studio saying that they didn't like this. It, you know, it's almost the same as, you know, uh, the new head of Warner Zavala saying that, you know, why did we make this Clint Eastwood film? Leave us out, pull those curtains. I don't really want to know that level of messiness that happened behind the scenes. Just a, a stick with Aquaman to a certain degree and Jason Momoa because he is currently shooting Olivia Fast X, the 10th film. Louis Leterrier, who made a couple of the Transporter films, he recently did Dark Crystal for Netflix, and he's been responsible for some awful nonsense as well, like, uh, like Clash of the Titans and The Incredible Hulk, one of uh, Marvel's worst films up there with Thor, The Dark World. So I, he's a director that never really, I always kind of found him a bit of a hack for hire. But anyway, he's currently shooting uh, Fast X and uh, and Jason Moe's had a really bad injury by all accounts. Yeah, it seems so. So without any explanation, Jason Momoa posted up a picture of him in what looks like a neck brace um, for an MRI scan. And he's about to be, you know, pushed into it to, to get a scan done. And he just posted this picture up on Instagram and he goes, oh, you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. Uh, thank you for my Ohana and friends. And you're kind of just like, dude, what happened to you? <laughs> like, what's going on? Are you OK? And so like a lot of people were sending like concerned messages to him, like Gal Gadot, Pablo Schreiber, Pablo Schreiber. Like they were all just being like, what has happened to you? Because there was no explanation for it. And um, it is suspected that because he was talking about how he was doing his own stunts um, whilst filming in Rome. They think that he may have taken a knock off a motorcycle. That was what the rumors were um, swirling around, um, which would kind of explain why the need for like an MRI, because especially like if he was doing the stunt without a helmet on, then that could warrant that kind of an injury. So we don't know exactly what happened. It seems that he must be okay because he then was posting stories, which we would assume were after getting the scan done. Um, he was back in the trailer um, on set. So whether or not like he's all right, we actually don't really know for sure. But it certainly seems that he is taking his um, role in the film quite seriously. And he's going in guns blazing. And, you know, like, as he said, if you want to make an omelette, you got to bring some eggs. And if that includes his body, then so be Yes. Yeah, he's probably the only thing in this new Fast and Furious film that I'm looking forward to seeing. But just to move things on, and um, we got a trailer for Thor, Love and Thunder. Before we chat about it, here's a little bit from it. The old ex-girlfriend. What's it been like? Three, four years? <laughs> Eight years, seven months and six days. Give or take. My uh, sensing feelings. Well, you're right. 
are the only ones who gods care about is themselves. So this is my vow. All gods will die. There's a little bit from Thor, Love and Thunder. I don't know, Olivia. I'm this trailer didn't do it for me. I'm a little bit on the on the fence a bit. I thought the best bit was at the end when we get to see Russell Crowe. But I don't know. It's look, it's very CG heavy and some of it looks very, very fake. What was your thoughts on the trailer? I have to laugh that when you mentioned the end of the trailer, you mentioned Russell Crowe and not the fact that, you know, Chris Hemsworth is Starkers. <laughs> well, you know what I was getting at. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, you know what? For me, there's there's aspects of it that I was very excited for. So we finally got our first look at Gore the God Butcher, who's played by Christian Bale. When we actually got to see Christian Bale in the makeup and sort of in that zone of what gore is about, you know, it, it was actually pretty exciting. They've gone for very monochrome look with him. They've gone for uh, practical effects as opposed to CGI effects, which I think is a very important thing, especially for Christian to get into character with it. Um, and I think he absolutely looks terrifying and that's what you want there's been a couple of people actually saying that this is what they would have loved to see Voldemort look like um, in the Harry Potter franchise as well instead of sticking with the the source material and giving him the flat snake nose and uh, CGIing out (laughs) Ray Fiennes' nose uh, to get that look so for me there was aspects of it that I was very excited about but then there were a few bits that just didn't look right. So the moment when Thor realizes that it's actually Jane wielding Mjolnir and he goes, Jane, that entire shot just looks like a big CGI mess. That doesn't look clean. That looks a bit of a mess. Then there's also a scene where she's walking and talking with them. And then you look at it closely and you're like, they've actually CGI'd that helmet onto her. Now, whether or not that's because there's something else going on in the scene. And when we actually go to see it in the cinema, she's not actually going to have that helmet on at all in the scene that they've used. But in the trailer, it it looked like crap. Um, Overall, I don't think the the trailer really added anything to the storyline in terms of what we already knew from the teaser trailer. So except for actually getting to see Gore the God Butcher. Um, But yeah, like overall, I think I am still excited for it for sure. I just you know, think what, was, you, know what, you know what I'm worried about. There's not enough. There was no gold bloom there. I need, I need, I need some gold bloom. You, you need some gold bloom back. And I just saw like Russell Crowe, and I thought, oh, please, don't tell me he's going to be the gold bloom in this one. Andy, Chris, just your thoughts on the trailer. What did you yeah, think? I think it looks to be a bit of a laugh. I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 I think we might have had this discussion before that I remember the first time I watched Thor Ragnarok, I came away and thought that was fine, but you know, given that Taika Waititi made it. And, you know, the wonderful things that he'd done, especially with Hunt for the Wilder People, I thought I kind of wanted it to be weirder. I kind of wanted it to be, to, to be funnier. I watched it again a year later and thought, you know, and I rarely say this to myself, Andy, I'm sure is interested in this. Chris, you were wrong. You got this so wrong. That was brilliant. It was an awful lot more fun than maybe the last five or six Marvel films put together. It was weird. I liked the fact that it looked like a moving comic book. I liked the fact that Taika Waititi remembered that, you know, this is a, a Viking story, but also, you know, a Vi- almost like a Viking Flash Gordon story. And let's like make it look and sound it like that. And let's have it, you know, embrace this goofiness. And I think what we're seeing in, in, in the few minutes of footage that, that we've been given from Thor Love and Thunder, that's exactly what he's doing again, except this time Taika Waititi 
has uh, written the screenplay, which mm-hmm. kind of makes all the difference. I would worry a little bit that, you know, he's going to push little things. You know, it's going to be the Penguins from Madagascar thing, right? Where, you know, we all thought this thing from that animated film was brilliant. We didn't want an entire movie of it. That's what we got. And we were disappointed. So I don't want an entire film where Korg is the psychic. I don't mm. want all of the weirdness from Thor Ragnarok to be just pushed right to the center. Play around with us, but don't, you know, just kind of, just just be careful that, you know, it's not just, that it, you know, it's not a completely overwhelming experience. I like the look of it, but I think to, to say, like, and I agree with Olivia, some parts of it look a bit fake, some parts of it look a bit odd, but I would also liken, you know, watching Marvel trailers versus watching the finished product in the cinema. You're almost, it's like you're watching someone in a kitchen. You just have to remember all the time, this thing's not finished yet. They are going to finish this thing. They're probably going to be working up until the week of release. Mm. So I would say any reservations about what it looks like, just in terms of the special effects, hopefully that's not the end product. That's a bit, that's all a bit muddled, Gordon. But what I will say is I'm looking forward to it. Do you know what? I have to say, though, Taika Waititi, in fairness to him, he is dying to make Flash Gordon. And until he gets that chance, he'll definitely weave his Flash Gordon through Thor. Andy, just before we, we we finish up on the movie news, does this trailer give you any cause for concern? Yeah, and I'd like you to send me that clip of Chris saying he was wrong. That's going to be my new ringtone. Christian Bale <laughs> is one, if not my favorite actor. And for him to go back to doing something in the superhero world, there's something here for him. And I do think the tone of the trailer... he did that with Terminator, Andy. Remember that? The thought, fantastic oh, Terminator salvation that I won't hear a bad word against. Oh, God. Uh, no, 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 no. That was kind of pre-Batman-ish. <laughs> but I think based on, I'm a fan of the, the comics as well, and I think the, the Gore story and uh, the Jane Foster one where she becomes Thor are a lot darker than this trailer is letting on. So I think the tone of this is very, you know, upbeat, sweet child of mine. I think the film itself is going to have a lot more. I think he kind of pulled that trick with, with Jojo Rabbit as well, though he couldn't to a certain extent given the, the subject matter. But that film was a lot darker than people thought it was going to be. I think this could be the case as well. I think this could be his his Empire Strikes Back of the Thor universe. So, And especially with the look, you've kind of hinted at it with the look of the design of Christian Bale's character. He's not going around in a Sweet Child of Mine trailer film. He is in you know, The Seven Seal or, or Bill and Ted, depending on what uh, version of death you like to go for. And his story is gets vicious. So I, I hope they bring a lot of that to the screen. And with Christian Bale playing, I'm never going to be excited not to see him on the screen. Oh, great stuff. And uh, just finally, finally, Olivia, uh, a sequel I never thought we would see coming, but there is talk of a Spinal Tap follow-up. Yes, so this is Spinal Tap. They're literally getting the the band back together. And I, for one, can't wait because I think that there was a lot of scope in the storyline, but I'm also kind of happy that they didn't go straight into a sequel. I think the fact that they are going to actually mold it around the fact that it's the 40th anniversary in a couple of years, and that's going to be like the main focus of it. I think that's great. You've got the same team coming, all coming back for it as well. So, you know, as long as, and I'm going to so jinx this film now, but as long as no one pops their clogs in the meantime, I think we've got a great film in the making personally. Because the original is such a classic. Rob Reiner, is he back as well? Do you know? He is indeed, yeah. Rob Reiner is back as are the the lead cast and they're all going to be working on new music together. They're all going to be working on the script. So it's going to be a total collaborative experience with the main foursome, essentially. So that's why I kind of have a bit of faith in the fact that like they, they've waited for it to be like the right time as opposed to just doing it just because, you know, like it was the, the film that kind of launched the production company at the time. They had a series of... Um, 
Rob Reiner wins um, in the wake of Spinal Tap. So I think that them not initially going straight for a sequel is a benefit to them as opposed to it's like, oh, well, it's going to be crap because we've waited so long. Look at Top Gun. Like, come on, if anyone can do it. (laughs) And that is a very nice segue into the break, because after which uh, we will be discussing Top Gun Maverick and the original 1986 film helmed by the late Tony Scott. But for now, Chris Wasser, Olivia Faye, Andy McCarroll, thank you so much. We'll chat to you more after the break for all things Top Gun Maverick. We love movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Welcome back to We Love Movies. Andy McCarroll and Chris Wasser are still here. We're talking all things Top Gun Maverick. But before we do, let's rewind the clock. Uh, 1986 was when uh, Top Gun came out. Massive hit for uh, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, the directors. It also was that the film that paved the way for Tom Cruise to go on to become a superstar. And also the film's director, uh, Tony Scott. It really launched him in Hollywood as well. Uh, Tony Scott being the brother of Ridley Scott and is sadly no longer with us. But just before we get into Top Gun and make our way then into the sequel, gents, Andy, I want to talk about straight away the, one of the film's producers, Don Simpson, an incredible partnership he had with Jerry Bruckheimer. But this man, just everything was excess. Um, he lived life like he was almost like a cartoon character, a bit of a, a some of might consider him quite an obnoxious, narcissistic character. He was like a walking chemistry set with the amount of drugs that were constantly in his system. So. Tell us a little bit about Don Simpson and then how Top Gun came on his radar. Yeah, so Don Simpson was it, if anyone's seen the film Swimming with Sharks, where Kevin Spacey plays a, an executive. It's very loosely based on him. There's a few stories you know, that Don Simpson was known for that is in that film. One of his assistants came back with um, sweet and low instead of sugar. And he then threw the coffee at them and said, that's not what I asked for. You're not being paid to think. You're paid to do what I tell you to do. And then the assistant would just go off and come back. He was like, things you would never get away from. Now, every horrible cliche that you see in things I've heard about producers, he was every bit of that. The man had a 60,000 a month legal drug habit. So it was, you know, his painkillers, his Vicodin, his uppers, his downers. And that's without even the, the cocaine coming into it as well. There was apparently, and this is, I'm not confirmed, it's uh, written of uh, the book about him, uh, the Don Simpson book, where they said there was close to half a million worth of drugs in his system when he, he had a heart attack and passed away. How the man was able to function, I don't know. The stories about him are just insane. The only thing he would wear is black Levi 501 jeans. He would wear them once and throw them away. He joined the, the, the Church of Scientology. He spent 250000 Didn't see any improvements because we won't get into that. So he threw <laughs> David Miscavige off the set of Days of Thunder because David Miscavige wanted to have you know, patented Scientology equipment. He was, by all accounts, just a force of nature. And we're getting on to, to Top Gun. How he even came to make Top Gun was he was reading an, um, an article in a dentist waiting room of all places all of a sudden, the authors um, of the the, uh, the article, uh, Awad Yohan, his name was, he said he just gets a phone call and this man just starts shouting down the phone to him. Yeah, yeah, I'm reading this. We're doing this. These guys are like rock and rollers and jets. And he's like, who, who are you? What's going on? He was literally sitting in the dentist chair. You could hear the equipment going in the background. And Don Simpson is trying to buy the story for him as he's reading the magazine article. And then even to go for the choice of director that he picks Tony Scott to. 
fantastic director, but hadn't done anything up until that point because he saw a Saab ad where a, a Saab was uh, outrunning a jet engine. He was like, okay, grand, he's got, he knows how to work with jets. Let's get him involved here. Somehow it, it, it all seemed to just fall into place where you would make these insane calls, but he, he seemed to have unbelievable luck or unbelievable instincts, depending on who you believe. Because if you look through his filmography, a lot of them are these high concept films that absolutely shouldn't work. You know, like Tom Cruise is a race car driver or, you know, the, the Beverly Hills cop, you know, a cop from Detroit goes off to Beverly Hills. Or These all sound ridiculous, but all of them made, you know, unfathomable amounts of money. And you know, as absolutely wretchedly horrid of a human being he is, he, he made good films. It's mad, isn't it, though, Christy, the yin and yang between Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, like Andy has just gone through. Um, and, and and really, there's there's so much more that you could discuss about Don Simpson, but yeah. um, that would be for a very different type of show. Um, but Jerry Brookhart seemed like a completely different individual. It was almost like the good cop and the bad cop. Oh yeah, I mean, you had the 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 film producer in one corner, and then the just the 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 mad movie scientist in the other. The guy who, as Andy said, would would sit down, read a magazine, and go, "I want that one." What, what would you like Don? I just want to make that and I, I think he famously said at one stage that you know next to eating and having sex that you know making movies was his favorite thing in the world didn't matter whether he was very good at it he, he he somehow managed to get movies movies made so yeah there's probably an entire podcast we could we, we, we could do on this character um, but I just like think that it's it's bananas that all of these odd accidents and incidents led to you know this iconic era defining film like Top Gun because it seemed as though everyone was just making up this thing as they went along whether you had Don Simpson saying we're going to make this movie it's going to be about you know uh, the, the the elite flight school graduates out in San Diego living this rock and roll lifestyle they, they didn't have a script and apparently there was a script was devised at one stage and Don Simpson and Jerry Bookheimer said, you know, no, that's not good enough because they needed it to be flashier. They needed it to, to be sexy. Again, they only hired Tony Scott because, you know, he made this very effective car ad, basically. Um, he had only made one film before this. The Hunger, it, wasn't it? Yeah, this, yeah, the supernatural horror. And it was it, you know, not that many people saw it. And you don't look at The Hunger and think, well, this guy is the future. Now, Tony Scott turned out to be, you know, uh, a brilliant storyteller, an amazing director. But maybe at that time wasn't the right guy for for. I mean, Top Gun, the original Top Gun, it's an outrageously stupid film and I do not hold it in high regard whatsoever. And we'll get to the sequel now in a minute, but it, it does, you know, there are some f- fabulous shots in it, you know, and it, and it does kind of, you know, it almost just to use a terrible pun that will come up again. It almost does take your breath away at times, but in, in terms of just telling a very basic story about, you know, the camaraderie, the friendship, the love affairs that went on, it's, it's not very good. It's very choppy. And maybe that's because Tony Scott had very limited experience. And then when it came to the casting too, I mean, if, if, if the stars had aligned differently, Matthew Modine would have been the one playing Pete Mitchell. And I, I can't fathom that, uh, to be honest. And I think the only reason that Matthew Modine actually turned it down is because of what everyone always says about Top Gun, that it is this, you know, very thinly disguised piece of military propaganda. And Matthew Modine said, I just can't get on board with, you know, the the the, the pro-military stance that this, that this film is taking. So it went to Tom Cruise. So it was just one bonkers incident and accident after the other. I can't believe that we actually got a finished film out of it. And on top of that, the highest grossing film of 1986. It was a film, Andy, that would change the career trajectory of Tom Cruise. Like at the time, like what Risky Business would have been his breakthrough film, but then Top Gun just set him off on a completely different direction altogether. 
Yeah, and just to kind of lean back into the Dom Simpson thing, Tom Cruise had apparently met him uh, at a party, one of these kind of Hollywood things where, you know, you're, you're schmoozing to try and get roles. And this was back, if anyone's seen The Outsiders, Tom Cruise had particularly bad teeth. And Don Sims went, you're going to be a star, but no one wants to have sex with you when you open your mouth. So get them teeth fixed or no one will do anything with you. So just to, to walk up to a man who would become the biggest star in the world and say, fix your face. And, and he did it. Uh, and just on Chris's point as well, like saying the script was completely evolved. Like I rewatched Top Gun there recently and you're looking at it going, wait, it doesn't actually say who the baddies is or what the story is mm. because you know, apparently behind the scenes, it was supposed to be Russia. The yeah. real life politics were kind of playing a part. And they didn't want to antagonize people. So that was taken out. So people like my, my brother watched it and he's like, I have no idea what the hell is going on in this. Who are they <laughs> supposed to be fighting? Which is a training? Which is the real life? But like, again, to what Chris touched on, like this was the biggest film of the year. This original cheesy, you know, camp as RuPaul's Drag Race movie that was basically a vehicle just to get Tom Cruise to become Tom Cruise. Like this was back in the day, you know, where you would make a movie star rather than you'd make a franchise. So it's not like, you know, with the Marvel model now, we're like, we're building a cinematic universe. You would build a person and you just hit your wagon to this and then it'd be like, okay, Tom Cruise is a pool player. Tom Cruise is a vampire. Tom Cruise is a... And he became a kind of a one-man cinematic universe himself off the back of this when you go back now, you, th- you look at it and go, how did this guy become the biggest star on the planet off the basis of this film? It's, it's, it's entertaining, yes, but it's definitely not something you think, oh yeah, this is going to be the guy who's going to be running Hollywood for the next 40 years. Totally, Andy. I only watched yeah. the film about a week ago and I'm looking at it going, there's nothing in Tom Cruise's performance that I'm going, ah, this guy. That's it. I don't know, Chris, if you felt the same or, yeah. or did you think, oh, he does have the X factor? Because... I really didn't see it. No, there's nothing about it. And you know what's weird? I think he's probably around 20, what was he? Maybe around 23, 24 when he made this. And you certainly know it because think about the scene where he first meets Iceman at the bar and himself and Goose are having the beer and they see Charlie across the, across the way and he's thinking to himself, well, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to chat her up. But he doesn't He doesn't just do that. They, they have a bit of a sing song in order to impress her. And while he's singing and while he's trying to, to, to woo uh, McGillis's Charlie, um, there, there's, there, there's a vulnerability there to his performance and, there's, and, and he, where he looks a little bit... Um, unsure. He doesn't feel like the cocky of type. They're kind of yeah. the, almost the alpha male that you would nearly expect. And you don't believe him as the mm. alpha male that he's supposed to be portraying. You know, he looks a little bit embarrassed. He looks a bit, you know, uh, anxious about the whole setup. And I'm thinking to myself, we're not looking at, you know, the biggest movie star on the planet here. We're looking at a guy who hasn't quite figured out himself. And I'm amazed that when people saw this, they thought we, there is the next big movie star. This is the guy that we're going to put in absolutely everything. And as Andy says, we're going to have him playing pool. We're going to have him racing cars. We're going to turn him into a vampire. We're going to, you know, cast him in Mission Impossible. I, I just I don't see it. If anything, you look at Val Kilmer and you go, there's your movie star. Mm. Absolutely. You buy him straight away as Iceman. And also, dare I say, you could flip it if you wanted and put him in the, in the, Kavrick, uh, the character of Pete Mitchell's yeah. Maverick. And I, he would easily do the same job. Um, but the film was an absolute mega hit. And over the years, Andy, there had been talk of a potential sequel and Tony Scott I'm I, I thinking he was prepping the idea of a, a film that would involve military drones. Yeah. And up until I think it was two days before his death, he was actually pictured with Tom Cruise kind of scouting locations and, and going through what they would do for the story. 
some of that has actually made it into the film that some aspects of it, but it hasn't leaned fully into the kind of the drone replacement thing. But by all accounts, it seems a very similar film and we'll get into it into the review. There's definitely one plot point in the film that was clearly written with, with Tony Scott and Tom Cruise and a lot of the original people involved that they've just left in that, that they really shouldn't have. But again, like I said, something that if you look through Tom Cruise's filmography, that's not the one, like if you said to me, go through that and pick out something you want to see a sequel to. And, you know, you look at things like The Color of Money, I'd like to see the, the way that flipped, the way Paul Newman came back with his character. You know, even things like Interview with the Vampire, I'd love to see what, what that's like, that character is like now. Mm. Top Gun isn't the one that you jump out. It's this kind of flag waving, you know, military recruitment video. And certainly not the one I'd say like, yeah, no, I would really want to see what, what those guys are up to now. Very true. And 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 actually, uh, Top Gun did what it needed to do because I, I think the, there was a massive uptake when it came to the US Air Force. Before we chat all things Top Gun Maverick, let's just take a little bit from the film's trailer. 30 plus years of service. Combat medals, citations. Only man to shoot down three enemy planes in the last 40 years. Yet you can't get a promotion, you won't retire. Despite your best efforts, you refuse to die. You should be at least a two-star admiral by now. Yet here you are. Captain. Why is that? one of life's mysteries, sir. So Top Gun Maverick is the big film in cinemas this weekend. The long delayed sequel to the 1986 hit film. Chris, plot wise, what's happening here? Because the trailer makes us think that, OK, something something maybe untoward has happened to one of uh, Maverick's old teammates as such when they were at Top Gun, uh, the, the flight military school. And he's sort of brought back as an instructor. Yeah, so plot-wise, it's fairly simple and direct, which is just as well. Um, you know, we, we do find uh, uh, Maverick is in the exact place that we left him back in 86. You know, he's still flying planes for the US Navy and he's still getting himself in trouble. And there is a very famous cameo from a great actor in the first few minutes. And I won't spoil who that actor is, but let's just say that Maverick disobeys orders from his famous superior and he breaks every speed record on the planet while testing this Mach 10 stealth fighter. Uh, but he's not supposed to be doing that. And it looks as though he's going to be thrown out of the Navy, uh, you know, because he also crashes this multi-million dollar stealth fighter but you know it's maverick look is always on his side and an old rival turned pal turned four-star admiral that's val kilmer's tom iceman gazanski he kind of helps him out from you know from beyond the scenes we don't actually see him for a while and we'll get into that now in a minute and he ensures that you know maverick avoids a sacking unfortunately the next thing to a sacking is actually you know for maverick to be sent back to north island to be sent back to where it all began and basically to be sent back to top gun where despite you know his protesting he's gonna have to become a teacher and he'll have to teach this group of cocky flight school graduates how to basically, this is where it gets a little bit complicated, but fly deep into some unspecified enemy territory in order to destroy this really heavily fortified uranium facility. It's not important, Gordon. The planes have to go in. 
plant some bombs and blow things up and everything goes smashy, smashy, fly, fly. Basically, <laughs> Maverick is a teacher. We've got new top school, top gun graduates. Away we go. Now, one of the big schools, emotional driving force in this is that one of those students, Andy, is Goose's son. Goose, of course, being um, the radar operative from the first film that was Maverick's best pal and uh, co-pilot um, of sorts. But um, his son is called Rooster in this play by Miles Teller. And there's a bit of beef going on. Yeah, Rooster uh, feels that Maverick, and to be fair, Maverick kind of does himself, feels responsible for his father's death. And you go, it's kind of so far, so 80s. What really surprised me is how much I bought into this storyline. Miles Teller, for all his lunacy as well, he is absolutely fantastic. It's very similar to kind of the relationship you had with J.K. Simmons and Whiplash. He is just like a dog on a leash. He is just simmering away at Cruz in every scene. You can just see the resentment in his face. And Cruz plays this really, really well. Like for all, you know, Cruz's idiosyncrasies himself. It's he always plays to better the movie rather than his own ego. Like there's scenes in this, like you would never imagine Vin Diesel, for example, signing off for a scene where <laughs> where Miles Teller is like a foot taller than Tom Cruise and he is like dressing him down and like emasculating him in front of people. Like you, you'd never see that. And there's also another as a lovely moment as well where Cruise kind of, you know, kind of being like the, the cocky little geek doing a booty call and he, he jumps down and he gets confronted. And it's just this like moment where you realize wait, I'm nearly 60. This is kind of pathetic. And we talked about it during Top Gun. We had that vulnerability and we became the, the, the movie star he became. He really plays that side of this, I think, in this film really, really well. Like he is very vulnerable and he is very, you know, he does play into the fact that oh, I've been 36 years in the same job, just basically acting the child. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. And you can kind of see it when he's got the regret over you know, what happened with Goose, not wanting to see it happen with the son. And then there's like little kind of um, intangibles about what happened with that relationship as well. That's really, really well done. Like yeah. for a film that's, you know, the sequel, if you watch Top Gun, like I wasn't expecting so much story and plot and, and well acted scenes between the two in a film like this. I just thought this was going to be, you know, shooty, shooty, bang, bang, plane, fly, fly. But it really does. It has a real heart to it. It's incredibly well made. And you can just see, like we talked about it endlessly on this part, why Tom Cruise is the star that he is. And it's because for everything he does, for all of, all of his you know, personal beliefs or whatever, five minutes into any Tom Cruise film, like, I'm entertained. You know, do what you want. He's jumped off a cliff. He's broken his leg. He's flying planes for real. He's trying to kill James Corden. You know, I'm all in. <laughs> and what about the female side of this, Chris? Because Kelly McGillis, I think a few years ago, she was quite vocal that the reason why they're not bringing me back is because I now, she goes, I, I don't fit the aesthetic that they would be looking for. And Meg Ryan isn't in here. Now, I think Meg Ryan's, the reason why she's not in here is that her character has, it's been written as such that she shouldn't be in the second film. And you, maybe people can argue, it's a, it would have been maybe nice to have her in here. But yeah. in, So there doesn't seem like any of the female cast has been brought back from the first film, yet you have some of the male characters and there's a there's a new love interest which was hinted at in the first film. Yeah, um, there's not an awful lot of room for women in this film, which is one of its flaws. And you think they would have fixed that uh, uh, after 36 years, Gordon? I mean, 
uh, unless I missed something, there's no mention of Kelly McGillis' Charlie. There is a, a, a few seconds, you know, a blink and you'll miss it of, of Meg Ryan's character because it is explaining, you know, just for the newcomers in the audience, this is what happened with Goose. This is Goose's son. This was Goose's wife. Right? Are we all caught up? Right now, we can now we can move on. You know, it doesn't it 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 doesn't push so so hard that you know it's not you know catering to people who might not have seen the force. You could happily go into this thing and understand everything that's going on. It's that simple. But I just think the way. Uh, you know, maybe K- Kelly McGillis has actually said that you know they didn't approach her. If 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 that turns out to be true, then 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 that's quite harsh. Uh, yes, the, the 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 whole or the love interest in this film, it is a character who was kind of I think maybe I'm actually struggling to remember now mentioned in the first one. But either way, we're back in the old bar uh, that Maverick uh, used to go to in Top Gun, and this time around you've got Jennifer Connelly's uh, Penny running the bar that I think her father used to used to run, and you know they've had some you know dalliances over over the years and it's kind of suggested that penny represents this you know uh moment or Pen- penny represents this this life that maverick could have if he just kind of would let go of you know chasing the dream uh if he just you know just decided to try something new stop flying planes you know settle down and there there is you know some interesting chemistry between the two but she this is jennifer Connolly. she's an academy award-winning actor and and she can do an awful lot better than playing a character who exists only to accommodate Tom Cruise's moods in this film. And I just thought that was an awful shame. And it's as well as that, you know, you have female pilots in the Top Gun school. And whenever the male pilots make, you know, anything resembling a sexist joke, they call themselves or they're called out on it by others. And, you, and, you know, and, and, and the women will smile and you'll realize, oh, this is a different world to the one 36 years ago. Yeah, but the women still aren't saying anything, you know? So I, I think, you know, a lot has changed. But an awful lot hasn't. Another thing as well that, you know, and I did, I, I did enjoy this film. You know, I'm just kind of like saying, you know, it does have its issues. Um, I think another thing as well is that whenever Tom Cruise is on screen, it's on screen, which is for most of this thing, there's no room for anyone else. So oh, it's nice. a good thing in a way because, you know, it's, I'm glad to see that it's a legacy sequel that's not doing the Star Wars thing where, oh, we've got the old gang back together, but 80% of this thing is all the newbies. You yes. know, at the same time, you kind of want to see, I want to see more of Miles Teller because he is working hard and he's doing very well. I want to see more of Jennifer Connelly and I want to see more of the Iceman. And all I will say is that actually, that again, it's a good and a bad thing. You know, I wanted to see more of Al Kilmer's Iceman, but I won't spoil anything for the brief scene that Cruz and Kilmer share. It's brilliant. Because as much as this is a film about, you know, planes going fly, fly, and everyone kind of just like puffing out their chest, there is heart to this thing. And it does kind of draw parallels between, you know, the real life Tom Cruise and Maverick in terms of here's two guys that, you know, chase the dream, got the dream, are still chasing it. Why are they doing that? And there's a lovely little moment where himself and Kilmer sit down to kind of discuss that and discuss how much has moved on and to kind of address the fact that look at these two you know, icons of cinema who were so young and fresh faced and sweaty in the first one. Look at what time stunts them. And I thought that was actually that was a lovely centerpiece for this film. Oh, very well. Listen, my appetite is well whetted. I can't wait to see Top Gun Maverick. It's time to get scores on the board. Uh, we also just have to mention Joseph Kaczynski is the director of it. And he helmed Cruise in Oblivion, which came out in 2011. So there's another directing partnership that Cruise has forged. And also behind the scenes, Christopher McQuarrie, who he's worked with from uh, like I said, Jack Reacher and also Macquarie did some writing on The Mummy didn't really help polish that third third but also he's been working closely with them on the Mission Impossible sequels of late and he came in to do a rewrite so uh, Macquarie's also in his back pocket but Andy anyway 
out of 10, what are you giving uh, Top Gun Maverick? I'm going to go eight out of 10. I'm also going to disagree with Chris as well. I like that this <laughs> didn't have, you know, it wasn't set up to be like the younger hipper cast taking over. It's not somebody's fate, like a fading star having one last attempt at the heyday. Like this seems to be made for all the right reasons. I think that, that it's perfectly summed up in that Val Kilmer scene. Like that is how you use a legacy character. That was just that scene is one of my scenes of the year. It is one of my films of the year. I absolutely loved every minute of it. So eight out of 10 for me. Oh, very good. Chris, over to you for Top Gun Maverick. Oh, it's definitely flawed. And I had some issues with it. But, you know, at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, have your four stars, Maverick, you know, be like be like the Iceman because he kind of deserves it. It's extraordinarily well made because Inski and Macquarie have just crafted some incredible scenes here that, you know, in utilizing, you know, practical effects and in actually, you know, doing the things that you're seeing on screen as opposed to just like creating everything on the computer afterwards. It makes all the difference when you see it, Gordon. So I would actually urge anyone who's interested in this thing to watch it on the biggest screen they can find because it has been worth the wait. And I think it's 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 lovely to see, you know, a big screen, you know, exercise and nostalgia actually work out so well. So we'll go with Ace and we'll leave it at that. I will oh. say, Gordon, no more sequels. Just leave it at this one. Hopefully it's done the, the, the original justice and maybe quit while they're ahead. Andy McCarroll, Chris Wasser, thank you so much. That is Andy and Chris's review of Top Gun Maverick, both giving it an 8 out of 10. Well, that is our lot for this week on the show. Thank you so much for your company. Uh, Don't forget, you can download the podcast as well. Head along to Apple, iTunes, all the big pod platforms, and you'll be able to uh, listen back to the podcast if you've missed any of it. Thank you so much for your company. We'll do it all again next week from 8 right here on Spin.